up, everyone, and welcome to the Impact Michigan podcast. I'm your host, Leanna Bod, and I am really excited that you're either watching or listening to this show. This show is about the people making the growth and development of Michigan's economy happen. Entrepreneurs, investors, innovators, public figures, you name it. If they make stuff happen, they've been on or will be on this show. Before we get into things, I wanted to invite you to support this podcast through my Patreon account, which you can find at www.patreon.com. Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Leanne Abad. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's essentially a way for creators to be supported by their most dedicated fans. And I would hope that's you. So if you're interested in more of this content and helping me make this thing sustainable, check it out. All right, with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, even though this is a library, we can totally talk as loud as we uh, as loud as we can. This feels very much like the SNL skit, where it's like, "Yeah, I like salty balls." <laughs> I haven't <laughs> seen that one. It's, it's a classic, man. It's a classic. It's great. Yeah. Um, so, Marcus, one, thank you for coming on. Uh, two, I always like to start the podcast off by allowing my guest to take the reins and just tell us a story. So. For the fans, who is Marcus Collins? Well, that's like a very philosophical question. Uh, you know, I think about Marcus, I'm not I'm a third person, good grief. Um, I consider myself a one-part practitioner, one-part uh, educator. I think, you know, if I were to describe what I'm all about, it's about putting great things in the world, putting dope things in the world. Um, and as an academic, I get to put people in the world. And as a practitioner, I get to put ideas in the world. Um, all in an effort to kind of just make a little dent, you know, a little dent in culture. Um, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a, a servant, uh, and all those other great things. Uh, but, you know, my, my, my story actually starts in Detroit. I'm a Detroiter. Um, and I, I always, every time someone asks me about, like, tell me about yourself from a, a, a storytelling perspective, I always start with Detroit because I consider myself a product of the city. Um, born and raised, went to public schools there my entire life, Golightly Educational Center, Cast Tech. Um, came to Michigan undergrad to study engineering because I thought I was excited about polymer chains. And I think polymer <laughs> chains are awesome. You know, that carbon, that carbon can come together and create these tangible things. But the closer I got into the studies, the more I realized this is not what I really want to do. Uh, it's super interesting, but definitely not what I wanted to do in practice. And I started taking some music theory courses because I was a musician as a kid. And this is really a way to offset my failing GPA. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, I I take these these classes and I started falling in love with uh, with major sevenths. I was like I wanted I want to be a songwriter. And I went home and said, Mom and Dad, I know what I, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be a songwriter. And they were like, Oh no, you don't. That's not <laughs> happening. Uh, so I decided to and I decided they decided that I would finish engineering and I did. And from there I, I did a music startup in Detroit um, after I graduated called Muse Recordings with another Michigan alum a guy named Mike Muse, and we. It, it, in some days we are a record label, some days we are a development uh, camp, uh, but what really stuck for us, even though we made music and we put music out in the world, is that we were pairing up-and-coming artists with brands who wanted to be a part of music but not in a very real, like, heavy investment. Uh, so we were pairing brands like McDonald's and Starbucks, uh, the NBA, Sprite, 
with these uh, these up and coming artists in different areas, particularly in Detroit. And that was going well for us until the music industry tanked and the music industry came to an end, or at least came to an end as far as the way it used to, to live. Uh, we figured that we had to figure something else out. So I went to business school and Mike went off to do uh, to work on the Obama campaign, which was obviously uh, monumental. So I came back to Ross, did the MBA program, um, and then went to go work for Apple, doing partner marketing in iTunes. While I was there, I met Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce Knowles. And he's like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You, you were an engineer, you started a music company, you have an MBA, you worked at iTunes, and you're black? Like, <laughs> dude, who are you? Like, you don't exist. Like, you're a unicorn. It's like, no, I, I exist, B. I'm, I'm real. And he's like, yo, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce. I said, I should totally do that. <laughs> and that's what I did. Um, and then end up, you know, living in New York, morphing into the advertising industry after leaving music. Um, had the chance to meet uh, Steve Stout, who was a music industry guy who went on to start an agency with Jimmy Iovine and Jay-Z called Translation. So I went to go work at Translation to run the social practice there, to start and run the social practice there. And while I was there, I, I just really kind of made my career and launched Cliff Paul for State Farm I moved the, the New Jersey Nets to Brooklyn, so launched the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, launched the Maine America Music Festival in, in Philadelphia, which is in, I think, the seventh year now, which is just unreal to think about. Uh, I, I launched the, um, the Bud Light Platinum for Bud Light. I launched the Kevin Durant Cut Your Bill in Half work for Sprint. Like Just like just really monumental work that made a dent in culture, which is really kind of shaped what, what, I, what I figure I'm here to do in this world uh, is to, to make a dent and to help people themselves realize their full potential and make a dent as well. Um, found myself getting into education, <coughs> teaching at NYU. I was in New York and Hyper Island. My wife and I have our daughter, Georgia, in 2014. We're like, we're done with the city. Um, found our way back to Michigan. Me back to Michigan, my wife's a New Yorker, to come to Donor to run the social practice. Um, and then I joined the faculty at, at the Ross School of Business, teaching marketing, consumer behavior, social media marketing. And it's been really, 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 really good. Uh, we've been here for almost three years now. And uh, it's it, it's better than I thought it was going to be, truthfully. Like, I came to Michigan thinking that my career was going to, like, you know, not plateau, but I thought that we was going to ride it out. Like, I had a really good <laughs> run, and this is cool. Like, I'm working at a great company like Donor and a really good good opportunity. But I didn't think that, like, my ascension was, was go- what it was going to be what it was when I was in New York. And it's been better than I imagined it would be. Um, so I'm super grateful. Um, and now, as of last week, I am the the chief consumer connection officer at Donor. New role for the place. You know, they made the role for me um, to really find the intersection of of what I love most. So I'm beyond grateful. Yeah, and so going more into that consumer connections from first glance, what it says to me is okay, connecting consumers. Is it connecting consumers to each other? Is it connecting consumers to the brand? So I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think organically what happens is that people have a proclivity to connect, right? You know, Aristotle would say that we're social animals by nature. So we do everything we can to connect people who are just like us, particularly people who are are homophilically um, connected to us, i.e. they they share similar traits, similar interests, similar values, etc. Like we, we are naturally inclined to connect people who are similar to us. So that's a natural thing that happens. And what brands try to do is to create similar kind of connections with consumers, right? We want to have relationships with our customers, their fans, etc. Um, 
so we humanize the brands to do that, right? We have a personality and like we're fun and we, you know, we don all these humanistic traits to create connections. But the idea is that we're people are connected to people and brands want to be a part of those kind of connections. Ergo, we need to understand how people connect with people and how people connect with brands as well. Because, you know, biologically, trust is trust. The same way we trust people and we create relationships are the same way we trust brands and trust technology. So if we're going to make these connections, we have to understand the underlying physics of how we connect and why we do what we do, why we connect with what we connect with. So the practice lives at the intersection or the convergence of the behavioral sciences, understanding what cognitively drives what we do, understanding the evolution of media, the fragmentation of the media landscape, and how how one navigates that. And lastly, and arguably most important, is how do you use culture as a vehicle to do that? So where behavioral sciences, media, and culture overlap, um, the alchemy of those things is really what the practice is all about. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious there. So how do you see, because there's, you know, obviously the evolution of influencers and micro-influencers, and people are sort of becoming brands. Like sure. the Casey Neistat brand, if you're familiar with no. Casey Neistat, he's like a YouTube blogger. Oh, yeah, blogger. Casey, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Casey Neistat brand, the, the Gary Vaynerchuk brand, the Sarah Dietschy brand, all of these like influencers who, you know, every day they have their camera, like I have my camera, sure. they lift it up and they talk to it and they get millions of hits. Like, yeah. and, and they are becoming brands and, and brands, for example, are partnering with them to do like really cool stuff like Samsung with Casey, yep. um, Hint Water with Sarah, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you, what do you like make of that? So I think that, you know, influencer marketing is, as it's been, been dubbed, it's it's not a new thing. I think that it has evolved to be much more democratized. So we think of influencers as the celebrities of the world, right? Like, you know, using uh, celebrity endorsements is probably one, like influencer marketing, one you know, 1.0. And 2.0 is what was democratized by the social web. So anyone with the phone, a camera, et cetera, can communicate their point of view and those who see the world similarly Will, will latch on. And while those people have influence, when I think about influencer marketing, I think about it from a, a behavioral science perspective, and that is how does influence happen? Mm-hmm. Um, the most influential people to us are our people, our networks of people, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our congregates, teammates, fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, people who see the world similarly to us, right? People to whom we are homophilically connected. Right. Um, so if our people are the most influential people, what does that mean for the micro-influencers or the Beyonce's and Kim Kardashian's of the world? Well, I refer to those guys as that they are influential. They're not as influential as our people. So those people are more like contextualized media. Mm. So when I teach this in, in, in class, like, you know, I say, you know, hey, guys, uh, is Beyonce an influencer? And everyone's hands go up. Absolutely. Right? Totally an influencer. I was like, okay, so do you got, who loves Beyonce? The whole beehive raises their hand. Love Beyonce. <laughs> oh, yes, queen. Love her, right? And then I say, okay, great. Who owns um, Ivy Park gear? And like maybe one hand goes up. I says, wait a minute. I thought you guys love Beyonce and Beyonce's an influencer. If Beyonce's an influencer, why aren't you wearing her gear? Right. Something's wrong there. Mm-hmm. Or I say, you know, who thinks Kanye West is an influencer? All the hands go up, right? And I love Ye. Even I love the old Kanye. The new Kanye, I'm not sure. <laughs> I uh, miss the old Kanye. I do, man. <laughs> Chop up the soul, Kanye. Straight from the flow, Kanye. Yeah. 
Um, so I raised, everyone raised their hand. I said, great. All right, so who was wearing a kilt when Kanye was wearing a kilt during the Watch the Throne uh, tour? No hands go up. I said, but I thought Kanye West was an influencer. Or, or who says Drake's an influencer? Hands go up. All right. Um, and then I show the video from Hotline Bling. It says, who dances like this? <laughs> Nobody, Nobody, right? No one uses those dances. <laughs> so what's going on here? If these people are supposed to be influencers. Why aren't they influencing our behavior like an influencer is supposed to? Um, and what I say is that those people are influential. They're just not the ones who have the greatest influence on our behavior. Our people do. Now think of it this way. If we see Jay-Z wearing a really cool hat, we go, yo, that hat looks pretty dope. And I have an outfit that matches that hat. It looks good on Jay-Z. It probably looks good on me as well. And if we are inclined to go buy the hat, we then wear it out with our friends. We go to brunch with our friends. And if our friends say, you like an idiot, take that hat off, we take that hat off. Right. And we never, it never sees the light of day. What sticks, what makes the behavior sticks is what's normative to our people. So just like a television ad would be like, oh, that looks like a cool car or that looks like a cool uh, uh, headphones or whatever. You know, an ad is media. Using an influencer, whether it's Shaquille O'Neal or Kim Kardashian, it does are, are contextualized media, right? right? Um, the, the cases of the world, the Michelle Fonz, the Logan Paul before we realized he was a dirtbag, um, those people are even more contextualized. <laughs> they remove the ideal, uh, the the ideological influence that we typically hold to celebrities and make it a bit more human. But the people who are the most influential are our people. Because if my friends at dinner are like, yo, that hat is amazing, Marcus. Like, it looks so good on you. I'm wearing that hat all the time, right? right? right. Like, those people have the greatest influence on my behavior. And even they may say, I'm going to get a hat as well, like that. Our people have the greatest influence. The idea is that we use these contextualized influencers um, from the celebrities to the micro-influencers to the, the mega-influencers like, like uh, the Michelle Fonz, uh, PewDiePie's, uh, as a way to get greater reach. That's the media side of it with the context of what that person has expressed and uh, demonstrated expertise in. Yeah, it's almost as if like once people reach a certain level of influencer status, it's like they're just just above the threshold of not necessarily see, seeming like they could be the best friend sitting next to you. Exactly. You know, we we call it keeping up with the Joneses, right? Mm -hmm. We compare ourselves to people who are just like ourselves, right? We don't compare our, like we don't listen to uh, we don't listen to Jay Z talk about how much money he has, and then look at our 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 bank account and says we're losers in life, right? Because we don't compare ourselves to Jay-Z. We compare ourselves to our people, right? There's been research that shows that people would rather make less money overall if they make more money relatively, hmm. right? So, okay. you know, would you rather make $35,000 where all of your peers make $40,000 or would you rather make $30,000 where all your peers make $28,000? Right, right. People would rather make really more money relative to their peers because we're comparers by nature, right? We compare ourselves to who next to us so we know where we stand. We're really hard. We're really awful. Um, human beings are really awful at determining value, determining how good we're doing. So we compare our situation to the people around us to to get a sense of whether we're doing well, whether we're successful or whether we're winning or whether it's a good job offer or, or whatever the case may be. 
um, we compare ourselves to our peers, not to the ideological influencers, whether they are the cases of the world who makes probably millions of dollars now or the Jay-Z's of the world, right? Even if someone's starting a blog or starting, you know, they're starting a, a YouTube page, they're like, I have a thousand subscribers, great. They don't look at Logan Paul and say, I'm a loser in life. Right. Look at people who, who just start off like them. Again, we compare ourselves to people who are relative to our, our situation, who are peers in our situation, um, which is why this idea of influencer marketing, it's really just marketing. We're just using a different media vehicle to do it. Right. I find that really fascinating, the fact that, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious there's the whole like keeping up with the Joneses type of thing going on. But I'm curious because, you know, me personally, I imagine there's maybe a few other people and I feel like we're a little bit of the outliers where it's like we sort of like I, I personally, I'll, I'll talk from my perspective, but like, yes, I do compare myself to the people around me sort of, but I understand the value of also comparing myself to people that I that are at where I want to be at. Sure. Like, you know, like successful people who are already successful. And I'm like, okay, what did they do when they were my age? What did they do when they were, you know, uh, in my spot in life? So what do you think it is? I mean, and I don't know how how behavioral science you want to get into this, <laughs> but what do you think it is about, the hu- about human nature that lends ourselves to compare ourselves to other people? Do you think it's do you think it's just purely natural? Or do you think it's it's sort of nurtured? And, and this is obviously a big debate, but well, I I, th- I think some of it is dispositional. Um, some of it is in our cognitions, um, and some of it is based on who you are, right? Like there's people who look there's people who look at these ideological folks to say that's what I aspire to be, mm-hmm. right? So if you start singing, you're like I'm gonna be a singer, and you listen to Beyonce, you know, like I hate myself. You're like, that's where I want to be. That's what I'm working towards. But that's not, Beyonce's not your peer set. Mm-hmm. Beyonce is what you're trying. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Your peer set are the other people who are trying to make it, right? And if you, you, know, if you get signed by a label and you release your first album, your peer set are people who are just now re- releasing their first album. So our peer set continues to evolve as we evolve <coughs> or degrade as we degrade. Um, and I think that from a cognitive perspective, you know, we're just really difficult. It's really difficult for us to figure out value. Mm-hmm. That is, what something's worth um, and how good something is. You know, it's the same idea that, you know, we'd rather be an eight in a room full of sixes than a six in a room full of eights, mm-hmm. right? Like, we'd rather be the best of, but we don't really know how, how, how much things are worth, yeah. right? When you go to a store and you see a new product, the first thing you do is relate that to a product similar in nature and you say, I paid this much for that, so this much, so this has to be around that ballpark figure. We are comparers by our very core. It's all it's what we are wired to do. Uh, because we can't look at things on their own and price how much it might be worth. That's why uh, the, the Price is Right is such a funny show. We look at the Price is Right and people are like, you know, when you ask people their, their logic of how they do it, they're like, well, I know this is worth this much and that's worth that much. So I either dial it up a little bit or dial it back a little bit. We're just comparers by nature. And it's not just in the things that we transact against, but it's also how we look about ourselves, look at ourselves relative to the people who are around us. Yeah, it's almost as if we, we always seek for context, sure. you know? Yeah. It's like... 
okay, like where what is this item worth in the context of what I already know to be existing? If I'm buying a camera, right? If I'm buying this Panasonic that I have on the table, like based on my uh, context with the other cameras I've bought, let's look, let's look at the specs. Let's compare and contrast. And right. so that's really interesting. Um, but on to another question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could go on that point forever. But um, so in one of your talks, uh, you have the phrase, I am a blank, we believe blank, in relation to uh, predictive modeling and networks for marketers. So explain a little bit about that for um, the audience, then also so I just kind of remember a little bit about sure, when sure. I wrote this question. So so the, the, notion, is, the notion is that uh, marketers typically – you know, it's said that marketers see consumers as real-life human beings, having all the dimensions and trappings that real human beings have. Um, but the truth of the matter is that marketers don't know people very well at all, I, and which is a bit of a bold statement. But the, the biggest case point for that is demographics. You know, we use demography as a, as a means to describe people, age, race, uh, household income, geography, education level. And based on those definers or things like that, these static truths, we describe who people are. And while those things are factual, they are certainly not accurate, right? Take my demography. I'm 39 years old, African-American, uh, born and raised in Detroit, went to public schools my entire life. If a marketer saw that on a brief, they'd say, oh, he must walk like this, talk like this, shop at these places, uh, hang out with these kind of people, do these sort of things. That's that's, that's just what those kind of people do, the kind of things that people do. And it sounds awful for me to say it out loud, but this is what marketers do all the time. Um, and while those things are truthful, yes, I am 39, yes, I am black, yes, I am from Detroit, they don't give rise to the fact that I grew up playing jazz as a kid or I swam competitively, which is a huge stereotype break, by the way, or that I like to sail or you know I was an engineer undergrad. Like You don't get any kind of... Um, insight into that based on those those demography describers and those experiences sh shape how i see the world and the way i see the world informs how i behave in the world so if we really really to understand people we have to have a better way to describe them now good marketers would say well that's why we focus on psychographics instead of looking at you know their demography their age their race their household income we look at where they go what they do what their passion points are what they like that paints a far more vivid picture of who people are, absolutely. But psychographics only tell you what people do, not why they do it. So if we really want to understand people, we have to have a better way to describe them, better than demography, but we also need a sense of causality beyond what they do but why they do it. Enter this idea, this provocation of networks. Networks being a far better way to describe people, but also a better way to think about what they're likely to do. Our networks being our friends, our family, our coworkers, our colleagues, people who share the same beliefs, social norms, unwritten rules, and rituals. We use these people to self-identify, right? So like, I, my name is Marcus Collins. I'm a part of the Collins Network. And we believe family and church come first, right? Um, so therefore, every Sunday morning, I'm in the church sanctuary, right? That's what I do because I am a Collins. I'm a Michigan Wolverine. We believe we're the best school ever. I suppose it's debatable, but that's what we believe, right? <laughs> right, right. And naturally, we hate Ohio State, mm -hmm. right? We hate Ohio State. However, that wasn't our application when we decided to come to school here. We didn't sign off saying, I'm going to hate Ohio State. We adopted that belief, right? And as adults in our lives, we're like, Ohio State, boo. 
like 20 years after graduating, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, what did school ever do to us? But that's what we that's what we believe. And, you know, that, that saying in philosophy, I think, therefore I am. In this case, it's I am, therefore I do. I am a Collins, therefore I, which gives this rubric uh, that we kind of think about subconsciously is I am a identifier. We believe this, therefore I do that, right? I am a Collins. We believe family church come first. Therefore, Sunday morning is in the church sanctuary, right? I am a Michigan Wolverine. We hate Ohio. We, we think Ohio State sucks. Therefore, I defecate in Ohio State every time I have an opportunity because they suck, right? We adhere to these the, these rules, these unwritten rules, without even thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Summers puts it this way, that much of our daily lives are governed by social norms. These are the societal expectations of what's acceptable behavior yeah. among a group of people. And to stay in good standings with these people that we use to self-identify, right? I am a Collins. I'm a Michigan Wolverine. I'm, I work at Donor. You know, I, I'm from Detroit. Like these things that we use to self-identify, because we they're part of our identity, we do everything we can to stay in good standings with those people. Right. And, and, and it goes be, even beyond that. You know, like the brain processes social distress the same way it processes physical harm. That is, when we are at odds with our people, it hurts. Which is why we use euphemisms like she broke my heart or it was like a punch in the gut. Because this is the brain trying to help us to stay connected. Because as you know, anthropologists would argue that the reason why man was able to evolve was our ability to socialize, right? It's, we were called homo sapiens, which means homo, that means people, sapien meaning wise, people wise. Our ability to grow big prefrontal cortexes, it would allow us to nurture relationships in a great mass and work in, in, uh, in cooperatively with people. So this is our brain making sure that we do what's best for our survival, socializing. And therefore, we, do, we, are, we feel physical harm where it outs with our people to incentivize us to stay connected. And we stay connected by adhering to the shared beliefs, social norms, unwritten rules, and rituals. So as a marketer, this is superman powerful. Because if I can understand the network dynamics of groups of people, then I can interact or connect with them or activate them based on an overlap of their beliefs and the brand's beliefs. People see the world the way I do. They become walking, talking evangelists for the brands, right? Like you're wearing merit right now because you believe. You believe in the brand. You share beliefs that the brand exudes, that that, that they impute. And therefore, you use the brand to communicate your identity. And this is when marketing becomes stupid powerful is that we use these brands as badges of this is who I am. This is what I believe. Who else out there sees the world similarly? When I was living in New York, I would only wear a Detroit Tigers hat exclusively. So when I walked around New York and people from Detroit or Detroit area would be like, you from Detroit? Yeah, from Detroit. What's going on? Connected. I moved to Detroit, uh, moved back to Michigan. Everyone wears a Tigers hat. So I don't wear a Tigers hat. Uh I exclusively wear a Michigan hat. Uh Because when I'm walking around Detroit or Southfield where Donor's office is, and people's like, go blue, go blue, exactly. Or if I'm on a plane somewhere, someone's like, go blue, go blue. I feel connected to humanity. We do this all the time without even thinking. Um, so understanding the network dynamics become really powerful in how the brand communicates itself and behaves, its kinetics, so that the brand is preaching the gospel and the people who see the world similarly said, yeah, I'm going to use that brand to communicate my identity, if only subconsciously. So I want to tell you a story, okay, and it, it relates to that last to that whole 
I don't want to call it a rant because it was just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful rant. Let's yeah. do that. Um, so I recently listened to a podcast that detailed a media stunt. And this media stunt was created to change people's feelings toward violence, specifically genocide of another race. This yep. was in uh, Rwanda and the Hutus and the Tutsis. Um, in short, uh, I forgot which side, but um, one side thought genocide of the other race was okay, and the media stunt was trying to combat that. Essentially, it was a radio show because there was one radio show that was purely like pro-genocide, just pushing that norm. <clears throat> and so uh, this media stunt was a sort of um, Romeo and Juliet-esque story between uh, a Hutu and a Tutsi. Yeah. And what happened after the media stunt was was what I think is really fascinating. So the people who thought that uh, the Hutus or the, Tutsi, the Tutsis that thought that genocide was acceptable still thought it was acceptable, a.k.a. their thoughts towards the issue didn't change. But what changed was the perception of the social norm. Essentially, what the media stunt did was it made them think their neighbors felt that that romance between the two races was okay, inevitably changing their behaviors. Yes. So to further on that last point, what is it about social norms and behaviors that you see today that are sort of established through media, through, I mean, there's a I mean, that's that's how fake news got so sure. big and so impactful is because maybe it did establish a, a social norm like, oh, everybody's thinking this way. Yeah, so that beautiful, uh, beautiful campaign, it sounds like, you know, I think that so so I, I spent a lot of time working in, in social media, the the evolution of, of the media landscape. And I hear a lot of things like, you know, because of Facebook, things are so awful and like fake news and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when I look at it, and I look at it a, a bit cynically, because I'm saying, well, yes, you know, yes, what's happened through fake news and the Cambridge Analytica and the, the proliferation of divisive stories called divisive content is awful. But truthfully, is it really that different than what it's been, right? Like, you know, we say fake news. I'm doing air quotes, fake news. But is that just a rumor? Like, have we been spreading rumors for a really, 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 really long time? Um, and when I think about rumors or gossip, you know, gossip is a way to self-govern a body of people without an authoritative figure, right? Like, gossip is actually a really powerful tool and and can be beneficial, though it's, you know, oftentimes malice in nature. You know, gossip allows a group of people to fortify the social norms, what is acceptable behavior among a group of people without someone looking down on them and saying, I'm going to punish you if you do this, right? So if I'm like, hey, Leanne, did you hear about what happened with Dave? You're like, no, what happened with Dave? I'm like, yo, Dave did blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no way. In your head, you now say, okay, make sure I do not do what Dave did because what Dave did is, is against the social norms of this collective, this network of people. Um, but also, you then now know, okay, I'm not to do this, but I know that if I do that, then I'm going to be, ha I'm going to have social distress in my network ties, like Dave. And your brain's saying, stay away from that, stay aligned with what's normative to the network. Um, and what today's technology, the ubiquity of the social web, particularly Facebook, is that it's, it's a, the, the news feed is becomes a, a, a receipt of social norms. Right? I get to see what all of my people are doing, what they feel about a particular topic. So it then conditions how I 
should feel about it, how I should act, right? Um, you know, is this okay for the Hutus to do this? Are we doing, this is what we're doing, this is cool, this is acceptable, great, I'm gonna do it also. Or if I don't believe, then I say, you know what, I don't identify with this, so I'm gonna find another network of people who see the world the way, the way I do. Um, you know, when, when, when people aren't a part of a network, when they aren't like connected to a crew or a clique or a, a group of people, we like, mm, I don't know if I can trust that person. The person is like a loner. Mm, something's wrong with them. Because we know intuitively we are wired to be connected. And what the technology today provides for us is a public progress bar of what's acceptable behavior among a group of people. Um, so when, you know, you know, <laughs> you see this on, on Facebook a, a lot, you know, like, yo, so are we, are we like, are we dissing Kanye now? Like, is Kanye, is Kanye not invited to Wakanda? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, so are we, are we voiding them from, banned from Wakanda? Right. Right. And which essentially is, it, are, is, there, is he a part of us still? Right. Like, are we dissing him just so I know how to behave? Right. Because what, what's scary is that you say, but I don't see the real big deal in that. And everyone's like, ah, you're not coming to Wakanda now. Right. And we're like, I don't want that social distress. So even if I don't believe, even if I'm like, it's not that big of a deal. And it is a big deal, by the way. But even if I am that out, outlier who's like, I don't believe it's a big deal, not a big issue. This Kanye thing, right? I'm keeping it to myself because I don't want to be ostracized from the network. Right. Which is why when we come together for Thanksgiving with our family, we don't talk about religion. We talk about money or politics because those things are divisive. Right. They're divisive because they are belief structured. Or they're they're rooted in belief, and we don't want to uh, we don't we, we don't want to celebrate or not celebrate is the wrong word. We don't want to evidence that I believe something different than the network, right. because then it becomes well, are we really connected? Mm -hmm. Are we really the same? Mm -hmm. Are we really a part of the same network? Um, so those things we shy away from, at least socially in this country. And what the social web provides is an outlet for you to identify friend or foe. And from an evolutionary perspective, that's how we survived. Are we a part of the same clan? Are we a part of the same tribe? We are, I can trust you. Mm -hmm. If not, mm, we gotta stay away because the, the, the job of the brain is to help us survive. Right, and so, man, I had a few questions that you already answered, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Good, no but, um, but yeah, so, uh, I wrote, so I wrote this, the, this question before this whole Kanye thing happened before Kanye rejoined Twitter. Um, so initially it was, you're a Kanye fan, so am I. What do you think of the new philosophy book he's writing? <laughs> but now <laughs> I'm switching it to, and I don't want to get super political in this. Yeah, it's all good. But um, yeah, like what, I mean, it's interesting. It's fascinating, you know? It's 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 heartbreaking Yeah, because I love Kanye West. Yeah. Like I would jokingly say Kanye West is like my spirit animal. Uh -huh. Like it's, and it's, it's not just the music. I felt like very connected to his story. You know, him coming from, uh, from, from Chicago, you know, his mother being an academic, him spending a year in, in Japan. My mother's an academic. I'm from Detroit. I spent a summer in Japan. You know, he being an artist, particularly not the production side, but the, the him being an artist, people not like, you know, like he'd been the underdog. No one like he, him making it happen himself, even though everyone doubted him. And I've always kind of felt like that way as well in my career from music to advertising and beyond, even teaching. I just felt so much of my story kind of paralleling him. And even like in his most like obnoxious, 
you know, Kanye moments. I'm T-Swift, like, T-Swift, 2009. Yeah, and I'm like, like but he's kind of right. Like, right. Beyonce did have the best video right. ever. Like, and he and he clapped back with my beautiful, my beautiful, beautiful t- dark, my dark twisted t- fantasy. I, I, it's just one of the best albums in hip hop. Period. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, Runaway. And, <clears throat> come on, it's like the the entire narrative of that whole thing. Yeah, I I loved Kanye West. I mean, I, I love like 808s and Heartbreak. Like, it's, I just love the dude. Um, and would and would model a lot of the way I teach through Kanye, you know, lyrics, because I, you know, it just like as a marketer, you know, we talk about um, value propositions and like, you know, it, you know, the razor sharper, the battery lasts longer, the car goes faster. If you communicate those things, people want a fast car, will buy your car. Let's say, but yeah, but Kanye told us, and I spent five hundred bucks on this just to be like, you ain't up on this. Like, culture is more important than those value propositions. Like, that lyric, like, come on, it's like the best lyric for a marketing professor, right? right. right? That, like, you know, be able to stunt the social currency that comes from the label that I wear, the brand that I wear, is far more important than, you know, it, it it's faster or it's bigger or it lasts longer. Exactly, the value proposition. Um, so to look at Kanye now, it's like, yay, what are you doing, dude? What are you doing? Yeah, I mean, yes. <clears throat> and, and the sad part is that I don't believe, I think that what people are ascribing to him and things, the words that he used, I don't think he believes that in his heart. Yeah. I don't think that he's very good at articulating those things yeah. either. Like, if you just talk about himself, he, like, has the best words, right? Yeah. The best words. He's like, I am, I am this generation, Steve Jobs, yeah. Pablo yeah. Picasso, mm-hmm. Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And, like, Howard Hughes and, like, Kinda he is. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Or at the very least, it's debatable. Exactly. You know? It's not like you can completely disregard that. It's like, okay, there's an argument here. Exactly. You know, I think about like the dude's been culturally relevant since 2004, mm-hmm. since the since um, college dropout, right? Like his shoes. Like if you look at look at all sneakers made today, yeah. they all have that like kind of clothy knit sock thing that were the Yeezys. Like this is dude's impact on culture is on and, and real unparalleled. And literally, Yeezy did jump over Jumpman. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's the Yeezy effect on Adidas is ridiculous. It's on the guy. What the guy has done is unreal. Like he changed our vernacular. Like Cray. Like that's just yeah, unreal, yeah. I right? Remember that song. Like massive impact on on culture. And when he talks about himself. Like he does a great job at that, and and all the hyperbole, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But when he talks about things that he doesn't know very well, his articulation gets him in a, a lot of trouble yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he he is, his disposition is to be provocative, so he's always pushing the boundaries to start, yeah. and him not being as knowledgeable in the subject matter, like to say slavery is a choice, is just ridiculous, right. and to even equate to free thought, it's like it's even more preposterous, yeah. um, and then like to try to backtrack it, it's like dude. Just yeah, shut it the was, music out, my guy. Yeah, I think I think that's his biggest problem because you know, it's it's almost as if, like, and and kind of looking at it from a third person point of view. I mean, even though I'm not him, so it is third person. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Anyway, um, kind of just like looking at it, it's like he's almost being contrarian just to be contrarian. Of course, um, which makes sense, you know. And, and like you said, he's just his disposition is to push back on a lot of social norms. And I mean, you're completely right in that a lot of just like the way he says things, his his um, his articulation of certain ideas, like 
yeah, it's when you take that at face value, like the slavery is a choice thing. It's like, okay, dude, no, don't, you, you can't, like, no, no, no. You can't what even are you say that? What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, exactly. And then like when you listen more, it's like, wait. Do you, do you actually think that it's like I don't I don't know if you actually think that are are you sure that's what you meant right but I feel like a lot of people still hang up on that because you know I it's like it, it's it's hard for me to even say this because I really have no like literal skin in the game yeah yeah but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great really well done <laughs> thanks um but you know just kind of looking at it it's it's like there's a few actually like conspiracy theories out. In terms of, um, have you seen the Netflix documentary Jim and Andy at all? No. It was, um, so there's this comedian, uh, he passed away a while ago, but um, when he passed away a few years later, they did a documentary on him, or not a documentary, but like a revisitation of like his greatest acts, and Jim Carrey was playing him. Oh, wow. So it was Andy Kaufman. Was oh, yeah, 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 yes. yeah, totally, yeah, yes. yeah. So, yep. so, so. He did Man on the Moon, the movie yes. Man on the Moon. Mm-hmm. yep. And when Jim Carrey was in that role, he was he took method acting to its limits and even possibly surpassed them where and and people are likening that and like tying back clues and tweets of people in Kanye's circle, like some of the Kanye's tweets and like saying he's pulling an Andy Kaufman right now. It's actually a really good parallel. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I wonder how this is all going to shake out. Um, But, you know, it's like. Yeah, got to be careful. But at the same time, like, I think he recognizes, like, he is taking all of this, the the flack for this. Yeah. And so as long as I feel he doesn't displace it onto somebody else and, like, he is is literally being Jesus and, like, yeah. sacrificing himself for <laughs> what he thinks yeah. he believes in, you know, we'll – I mean, the dangerous part of it is that – I mean, look, I think Kanye sees himself in Donald Trump. This is someone who uh, people didn't think he had a shot. Um, and somehow or another, whether it was lawful or not, um, he finds himself in a seat of power. And then Kanye sees that in himself. That's the narcissistic side of Kanye that, like, we both kind of despise but love, right? It's like kind of love. It's just yay being yay. You know, let yay be yay. Um, but it becomes dangerous when it's so self-focused that he loses sight of how what he says and does impacts the broader populace. I mean, that's the that is the challenge of fame and power. And you know, not to get all like yay philosophical, but like that's I think that was the narrative of my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. It's you know, it's someone who got into music because he loves music, but also you know, love the fame, and him dealing with the fame. And ever since that album, like every album since then has been all about fame. Um, you know, I think that he he felt he lost it with um, the Taylor Swift moment. Mm-hmm. And he wrote My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy as like the love letter to endear himself back to yeah. the, the greater populace, yeah. the culture. He did it beautifully. <clears throat> but then I think that at the end of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which is all about him dealing with, with, with fame, the song Power is literally about that. Yeah. Um, you know, like, what would you sacrifice? You know, how much power would you sacrifice for, for your life? Um, like, that whole narrative is about him kind of dealing with, with, with fame and, like, finding himself on the, the lost in the world yeah. and being able to exit this plastic life, as he talks about with Kim, uh, we, we later come to find out. And then he comes back with Yeezus, which is 
if I would have known what I know in the past, I would have been blacked out on you, mm. right? Like if I would have known that this is what fame was all about, like endearing myself back to you was really going to be this anyway, then I would have been spazzing out from the jump, right? right? right. Exact same thing with Life of Pablo. Like all these things are him dealing with fame. And I think that he he doesn't he thinks about it myopically from himself through his own experience, but not thinking about the words and his actions have on yeah. the greater populace who really look up to him. And that's it's irresponsible. Yeah, that's difficult. And I mean, it's sort of it's hard because also, I mean, his song New Slaves, it's like, okay, before and then, and so it's like <laughs> how do you not have an understanding of this? But he knows this. Do you know this, man? I saw a great tweet the other day that said uh, uh, Childish Gambino, Dan, Dan, uh, Donald oh, Glover yeah. is the new old Kanye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is America. <laughs> He's that the should only... have been Kanye West. Yeah. Like, that, that should have been the Kanye West record to come out. This is America is amazing. The video is brilliant. And the song is awesome, too. But that's kind of where Kanye should be giving. I mean, this is the Kanye who said George Bush doesn't care about black people. Right, and now the tweet, you know, the meme going around is George Bush saying that Kanye West doesn't care about black people, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he's always had this this back and forth relationship with the culture that he loves, but then despises. It's it's really really weird. Um, and as a Kanye fan, I find myself, you know, I kind of myself in, in some cognitive dissonance. You know, like my identity tells me that everything he's saying, I I refute. And which makes me kind of hate him. And then, like, as a fan of his music and, like, what I think he's about, it makes me kind of hate him. Like, why are you doing this, man? Like, come on. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, and so running low on time here. It's all good. But before I ask my last question, yep. where can people reach out? Where can people find more information on you? Sure. Uh, so marktothec.com, M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C.com. That's my my uh, Twitter handle as well, at Mark to the C, Instagram handle also. Um, but on, on my website, there are talks that I, that I give that, that expunges a lot of things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and also, like, I, I do some writing as well, so you'll see that in, in the blog section. Uh, but that, that's, that's the location coming to a town near you. Awesome. And so last question here. It's actually based off Kanye. But <laughs> so, so before all of this um, – he was talking about a new philosophy philosophy book he was he was writing called yeah. Break the Simulation, yeah. and the core concept behind it is that people are obsessed with photographs because they're obsessed with time, specifically preserving time, mm -hmm. and that's a bad thing because a lot of times people get caught up in memories, even though they're and they get caught up in memories. Ergo, they're not living in the now. So, how does Marcus Collins live in the now? Uh, you know, I think about. I'm constantly thinking about tomorrow, which is not living the present. I think about what I don't do is like I try not to look back and romanticize the past. Mm. You know, I'm I, I feel so far away from, you know, the sunset to be able to look back and say, you know, good and well done, my faithful servant. I feel like there's so much more work for me to do. <laughs> so I don't I don't necessarily look back and when something happens today. I'll embrace it for today, and I'll keep it moving. And I was talking to my daughter about this. My daughter's three years old, which is weird. Uh, but I was telling my daughter about this in particular because she was sad this, mo this morning. She was sad about something you know, insignificant that a three-year-old would, would care about. And I told her, I said, you know, Georgia, my daughter's name, I said, Georgia, you have 10 minutes to be sad. 
be sad for 10 minutes and then keep it moving. And I think about that in the things that I celebrate and the things that I, I get down about. Right, I may say if I'm upset about something, I say I'm giving myself one day to be upset, one one day to feel bad about for myself, one day to be down. Then tomorrow, go, yeah. even if something great happens. So like you know, I feel like last week was like the best week ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I got promoted to the the chief consumer connections officer role at Donor. I got a, a teaching award at Ross, and that was amazing. And I was like on cloud nine all week, but now this is a new week, yeah. and like while I'm not at all. Um, ungrateful for that. Yeah. Now it's so. What's next? Right. Um, so I live for today, thinking about tomorrow, but knowing tomorrow isn't promised. Right. So I need to make the most of today. I can't relive tomorrow. Um, I don't know if I can't relive yesterday. I don't know if tomorrow will be. So I could like to do is make the most of today. And I think about the most of today um, through this perspective of how do I make a dent for tomorrow. Awesome. And with that, I really do want to thank you for coming on today. This was such a great conversation. It was like, I really enjoyed it. I felt like we could have kept going, man. We had, yeah. Yeah, we could make this happen. And we totally thank you for having going. me. I appreciate it. Next time. Next time. For All sure. Right. Thank you.